May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Forrest Gump claimed, Mama always did say, stupid is as stupid does. I don't have any idea what that means, other than maybe judging one's um, intelligence shouldn't be based upon their ability to be clever in their articulation so much as uh, their, their lifestyle, their behavior, their character. Stupid people aren't those who lack the ability to speak. They're those who do stupid things. That's what Forrest Gump's mother, I think, was trying to say. And if you've ever seen the film, you remember that Forrest was a guy who really didn't lack the ability to articulate himself. He, 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 he would stumble and, and grapple for the right words and couldn't quite speak, but you couldn't doubt his character. He was impeccable. He was kind, generous. He was uh, friendly, noble. He was heroic. I mean, if you looked at his character, Forrest was a great person. And I, so I think that's what his mama meant, that... That a stupid person is, not, is someone who lacked character, not someone who lacked intelligence. I should tell you that um, my wife has forever banished the word stupid from our house. I mean, it is, a, it is to her akin to a four-letter word. You're not allowed to say that word in our home. So I beg your indulgence, since she's not in the room right now, that we'll just keep this our secret, all right? But among little boys... You know, I have no experience with little girls. I, I, I have two brothers. I am one of seven grandsons. We have four sons ourselves. I know nothing of little girls. I know everything of little boys. And among little boys, the word stupid is a choice pejorative. I mean, you would not believe. The t- I mean, it is something like toilet face or even other bad words that I can't say. I mean, they love to wield the stupid word. He, you know, he, uh, he's playing my toy. He's so stupid. Or he ate my dinner. That happens when you have four boys. He's so stupid. Or, you know, he, he took my book report and he, he folded into a paper airplane. He's so stupid. You know, and, and so, oh, you know, that's the reason. It's been banished from the house. My guess is it hasn't been banished from the playground, but from the home it's gone and has been gone for some time. But if Mama Gump is right, you know, stupid is as stupid does. Who are the stupid people in our world? I mean, besides politicians, of course. I mean, those kind of go without saying, right? How about perhaps uh, Doran Singh robbed 12 banks in New York of $32,000 and went to Atlantic City and lost every penny at a roulette table, only to come home and find the police waiting for him in his house to arrest him. (laughs) Dejuna Tansmore, Michigan, 48 years old, went into a Walmart store, loaded her cart with $85 worth of laundry soap and Miracle Whip. I don't know how much of each. (laughs) Had her one-year-old niece strapped in the front in the cart and was trying to push it out without paying for it. And when the store security came, they were wrestling with her, and she took off and left her niece and ran away. <laughs> the police located the mother of the child. They were waiting for her, for Jujuana at, uh, at her home, arrested her. Denver, Colorado. A woman goes into her house to find that it's been burglarized. 
She looks around and some of the things that are missing in her, her son's room, a lot of things, there's a, a handheld gaming system that's going on, a brand new jacket she just bought her son, some other things. She calls 911 and she asks the police, will you meet me at this restaurant uh, across the street um, in the parking lot because I'm afraid to be in here. And so she, she leaves the house. She's in the parking lot waiting for the police to show up when three young men approach her. They offer to sell her a handheld gaming system. One of them is wearing a jacket that she had just bought for her son that was also missing from the house. The police arrive, and guess who went to jail that day? In Michigan, I, I, I wasn't going to use this one, but it was just too precious. In Michigan, just this week, a, um, a person was arrested for driving under the influence because they had driven their car into the front yard of the police station and hit a sign that said, drive sober or get pulled over. Yeah. Stupid is as stupid does. And you know what? We kind of like it when people get exposed for these sorts of things, don't we? I mean, it feels good. It's, it's kind of satisfying in a world filled with injustice when you see a little bit of justice, even if it happens because of someone's own stupidity. It's good to see people get what they deserve. But there's a little hitch here, isn't there? It's not just bad people who do stupid things. A little secret, sometimes good people do stupid things. Sometimes we all do stupid things. Sometimes we hurt one another, intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes we stomp on one another's sensibilities without caring or anything about the way someone else feels. Sometimes we actually sin against one another and cause great harm in the lives of people. Sometimes we all do stupid things. And that is the issue under discussion with Jesus and some of his closest friends. They're in a home in Capernaum. It's probably one of, their, uh, one of the disciples' homes, probably Peter's. And they're sitting around, and Jesus is talking to them, not about an event that actually happened. He's not saying, you remember the other day when this happened. He's talking about an event that will happen. And it will happen to every one of them, and it will happen to every one of their friends, and it will happen in the church for two millennia, and three if he should wait that long to come back. It happens over and over. It's an eventuality we all face. How do you handle your anger and your frustration When someone does you wrong, what do you do with that? Will you take your bulletin? Will you look with me at the the gospel lesson? Just kind of refresh your memory. I know you just heard it. Just for one more moment, look back at it and kind of keep it open. I think you'll see some things, maybe. Look at the very first verse, verse 15. If another member of the church sins against you. If another member of the church sins against you. Now, This isn't a matter of just offending someone's sensibilities. You know, it's not like you came into church in the morning and someone's sitting in your pew and you're like, they know I sit there every week, you know. Not like that. It's not that sort of thing. It's not even like, you know, some dumb oaf bumped in front of you with a cookie line at coffee hour. I'm sorry about that. I was hungry. Um, It's not those sort of issues. God, you got it. Yeah, it's not that sort of thing. It's it's the big thing, right? It's the... Sinning against you. That's what Jesus says. The one who sins. Do you see that word? Harmatia in Greek. 
sins against you. A serious violation of Christian conduct. It's something that kind of goes against your moral sensibilities, your moral reasoning. This is theft or fraud or having been cheated upon or lied to. This is a time when a person gets morally outraged, justifiably indignant. Not just, not just upset about some little thing. This is a big thing. Jesus is talking about sin, not manners. Do you get that? He's talking about sin, not manners. I think it's even a little bit bigger than that because the word against you is actually not found in a lot of the most ancient manuscripts. If a brother or sister sins, is what he actually says. If they sin. But for the sake of simplicity, let's keep it sinning against us, you know, against individuals. How does an individual respond? It's in the text. Look down with me. Verse 15. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Go. Point it out. That's a little bit of a tame translation. Um, the word is actually used of Greek philosophers who would um, controvert philosophical opinions. This is where you sort of you reason and argue out, or you lay out your case. Probably not argue, but really lay out your case. This is where you say, look, it's this, this, and this. Go to the person, lay out your case, be specific. Say what you have to say. I mean, be direct about it. Call it what it is. Theft, idolatry, greed, lies, adultery. Whatever it is, say what it is. This is the thing. Jesus says, an individual has been sinned against. Go to the person who did the wrong. Now, I want to qualify this and say, not everything that you think is a sin is actually a sin. You know, there are some times where, you know, we're offended by very small and, and trite things. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, you know, go to your senior warden and tell him, I saw you mowing your grass on Sunday. No, that's not it. Don't do that, okay? We're talking about big things. And what happens if you go to this person and you lay out your case and they agree? They say, you know what, you're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. You've won them back. You've made amends. One-on-one, you've closed that gap. And now you're friends again. You're you're reestablished. You're reconciled. Jesus says, you have won him back. Won him back to what? To the church. You have won him back to the faith. But what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't come back? Well, then you go get one or two others. So two or three of you go. And you go and you visit this person and you say, Remember, this is what happened. One, two, three. And what if still then they say, No, I I understand your argument. I don't care. You know, go, get out of here. I'm not listening to you. What do you do then? What's your, what's your recourse then? Having gone to them by yourself, having gone to them with two or three others, they still won't repent. They still won't turn. What do you do then? You bring him before the whole church. You make it a public matter. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that the purpose of the confrontation is for reconciliation, not humiliation. 
A person is to be confronted in his or her sin in order to be reconciled to the church, not to be humiliated in front of it. And so there is an attempt to be minimal in the exposure. It's always to keep it small. Don't make this a public matter. One-on-one, you know, two, two or three together. Then only the whole church. The measured response is an attempt to preserve a person's dignity and to preserve their, their reputation and not to tarnish it. But what if still, what if you've done everything and you have to bring it before the church and they still, even before the whole church, they would say, I don't care. I'm not changing. Get over it. It's the way I am. Like it or lump it. What do you do then? Verse 17. It's in the text. Look with me. If the member refuses to listen to them, that is to the church, or excuse me, to the two, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, then let such a one be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Somebody says, I don't have any idea what a Gentile or a tax collector is, but it doesn't sound good. I mean, this cannot be good, can it? Gentile, tax collector, that just sounds like, you know, I don't know, maybe a hell's angel. I don't know what that thing is, but that's a bad thing. Let me tell you, in the Second Temple period, uh, Jews viewed Gentiles as, as removed from God, incapable of salvation, beyond the reaches of God's grace. And tax collectors were actually worse than Gentiles because they were people who participated in the exploitation of their fellow citizens. And so they were worse than Gentiles. There was no possibility of God's grace. We might say the worst form of moral deviance, mobsters, drug dealers, thugs and gangsters, people way far removed from, from righteousness. And so you read this passage and you say at first blush, what well, sounds like Jesus is saying, if a person is in what the, the prayer book used to call notorious sin, they refuse to repent of it when you confront them. They refuse to repent when, when two or three go together. They refuse to repent even before the whole church. Then you shun them. Is, it, is, that, what you, is that what you see? I mean, that's what it looks like, doesn't it? You know there's a trick here, don't you? Yeah, it's like, everybody's like, no, no, right, yes, no. I de- that's a definite yes. Yeah. I want to ask you something. How does Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? And while you're going through your memory banks to say, oh, I know there's some passages up there. Let me remind you that Matthew, the person who wrote this gospel, was himself a tax collector. Matthew, the one who recorded this for us, was himself a tax collector. I do not think Jesus is saying you shun people who refuse to listen and refuse to repent. I think he says you treat them as objects of evangelism, as people on whom you should have pity, not anger. A people that you should, you should reach out to, that you should, you should try and try and try to build friendships with. And you know... This is where things start to get very uncomfortable because it starts to hit very, very close to home. You see, one thing to allow someone who does something stupid to make amends for it. I mean, we all mess up, right? We're all forgiving sorts. I mean, bygones be bygones. We'll get over it. 
And if they do it again, well, you know, I can't even handle a second time. But a third, a fourth, a perpetual refusal to repent and change, well, there's simply no excuse for it. You can't admit your sin. You can't, you can't own up to it. That's fine. You're out of here. <laughs> You're gone. We're done with you. I don't think that's what Jesus says we're to do. I think he's to say, I think he is saying that we are to work and work and work and work and work some more at reconciliation, at peace, at building friendships and renewing them. Not, what will you say? What happens if a person suffers abuse? I mean, a wife is in an abusive relationship. Are you saying that she should just deal with it and live with it? No, I'm not saying that. Not at all. There are times where there is, for a sense of, of safety or, or mental stability or whatever, that you have to get out of that sort of relationship. I am not saying, if you hear me saying that, you are not hearing me right at all. But what I am saying is that we ought not to give up on people as human beings. We ought not just kick them to the side and say, well, you know, I've had enough of that. I'm over it. I'm finished with it. We are to hold one another accountable. If you see another brother sinning, you're to go to them. We're to hold one another accountable so that we can all experience the goodness of God's grace and mercy in our lives. Not so that we get rid of them. Not so that we can kick them to the side. There's a story of a, of a man, who, a traveler, who was coming into Paris while they were building the cathedral of Notre Dame. And the, and the traveler comes and he sees this, this big construction site going on and he's never seen anything quite like it before. And so he, uh, you know, he, he kind of watches for a while and then he walks up to one of the workers and says, um, what are you doing? And the man looks at him and blurts out an expletive and he says, I'm, I'm nailing forms. What does it look like I'm doing? Oh, he says, okay. And he, he walks up to another. He says, well, you know, well, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm digging a ditch. What does it look like I'm doing? You know? And he goes to one another, another, and, and keeps getting these kind of surly, you know, snarky answers. And then he sees a fellow covered in dirt and grime, and he's pushing a wheelbarrow, and he's got the biggest smile across his face he'd ever seen. And he, he says to him, he says, well, what are you doing? And the guy says, well, I'm building a cathedral, of course. It's all about perspective, isn't it? This work of building the church, this end of the month, we're going to celebrate the paying off of a mortgage. I mean, how awesome is that? A million dollars or something over ten years? What, what a great job. Fantastic. The building's a lot easier to build than the church because we have all these dynamic relationships between one another and we've got to work at them for years and years and years we are building something more important than a church we are building the temple of the living God and it demands our very very best in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit